Good morning. We're very glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Scott. We have new people here every week. We've got a bunch of visitors, and so we don't want to assume who knows who. So my name is Scott Sutton. I'm one of three pastors here. Ben McGraw does the majority of the preaching, but from time to time, they let me take a shot at it. And so I'm thankful uh, this morning to get to dig into 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. If you would turn there, uh, that'll be our main text this morning. Um, if you're a visitor with us this morning, we just want to let you know we're, we're very thankful you're here. We, we really do count it a privilege um, to worship with you. And so we've got this visitor kiosk right here at the end of the service. If you're interested in getting more information about what we believe or what's going on around here, we encourage you to visit that kiosk. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to talk about contentment, godliness with contentment. Let's pray together. Lord, it is a privilege uh, to gather this morning to to sing praises to a great God and to know that you hear us and to know that you're with us. Lord, as is always the case when we gather, we want to pray for another church in the area, and I just pray for Ridgecrest. I pray for them as they are modeling so wonderfully that the church is not a building but a people, and as their people meet in a building that is not their their normal building, I pray that you continue to grow them. I pray for Matt uh, Beasley. I pray that you would bless that congregation, bless his marriage and his family, Bless the leaders that he serves with, and I just pray that you would bless that entire body as they continue to work through getting their building ready. And I pray that when that building opens back up, that you fill it to the brim with people, that you would be glorified in a church that is wholeheartedly engaging you and others for the sake of your glory. Lord, we also pray for our city. Your word tells us to do that, and that's why we do that. So we pray for our city officials on every level. Uh, We pray for our city council. Uh, We pray for our school board. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that we can um, entrust every issue to you. We don't just entrust mere, uh, you know, spiritual issues to you as deep as they are. We can entrust every single issue to you, and we are thankful for that. So we pray a blessing on our community that we know can only come from you. Lord, as we consider this morning what it means to have godliness with contentment, my prayer is that each of us would be very honest with the inward disposition of our souls. Lord, I pray for honesty as we reckon with what the scripture says. And I pray for wholeheartedness, as Clint has already said this morning. I pray that as we work through the scriptures, that we would know even more what it means, the very words that we just sang, that Christ is enough. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, things were coming to a boiling point for me. It had already been a very long and difficult week, and it was the first Saturday that I had had home because of the 18 soccer games we had had the previous two Saturdays. So I was trying to catch up on all of the deferred maintenance at the Sutton House, and frankly, it wasn't going well. I went to Edge and Weed Eat after mowing, and our weed eater broke down, and after two trips to Home Depot, and yanking on that stupid string 5,000 times, it still wasn't working. And I was frustrated. So I went inside to grab some water. And I realized that it was about 84 degrees inside. So I went to turn the AC on, but nothing happened. I kept hitting the button, and no matter how many times I hit it, nothing happened. So I went to check the fuse on the board, but before I could get into the closet to check the fuse, I had to move the piano. And as I moved the piano, I rolled it over my big toe, which hurt quite badly. And then I opened the panel to find out that, yes, in fact, the fuse was blown, and I would have to go back to the store again. 
almost immediately in that wonderful moment of frustration, just like, let nothing else happen right now. This is terrible. I got two texts. Ding, ding. The first text was to let me know that the church website had been hacked and was down again. And the second was from Pastor Ben on this Saturday evening, letting me know that he wasn't feeling well. He had lost his voice, and he most likely, for the first time in 15 years, would be unable to preach tomorrow. That meant that I'm preaching in 12 hours, which also means I need a sermon to preach in 12 hours that I didn't have in the moment. So I said to the Lord, my weed eater is broken. My air conditioner is broken. The church website is broken, and I'm pretty sure my toe is broken. So what should I preach on, Lord? And I said it in about that tone, not real respectful. I said, and what should I preach on, Lord? And the Lord said, contentment, and then he chuckled. Funnier than that, at 6 a.m., about four hours after I finished said sermon on contentment, Ben texted, said that he was feeling great. (laughs) We had received the miraculous healing that we had all prayed for, and I should have been happy about it, right? The thing is, if you prepare a sermon on contentment, you're not allowed to complain if you don't get to preach it, right? You're supposed to just be content with the way things are. I share all this with you to let you know that I'm preaching on something that I've long struggled with. Discontentment is a thing that it seems like it's regularly sort of knocking on my door, and I've long struggled with it. And in fact, I hope I struggle faithfully, but it's a struggle nonetheless. And I would be remiss, I would be insincere and disingenuous if I didn't share that right up front as we launch off into this sermon. C.S. Lewis once wrote a book called The Trouble with Pain, where he outlined the difficult but important need for Christians to respond faithfully faithfully when pain comes knocking in your life. He asked the publisher if he could write the book anonymously, not putting his name anywhere on it. And when the publisher asked, why in the world would you not want to put your name on a book that you're writing, Lewis responded, because I don't always live up to my own principles. That's how I feel when preaching on contentment. I don't always live up to my own principles. So I share that this morning so that we can together humbly consider what it means to have godliness with contentment in 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. So if you're not already there, look at 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's our focus this morning. The first half of the sermon is going to be unpacking that, and the second half of the sermon is going to be five application points. Godliness with contentment is great gain. To understand the context, it's important to look at the verses before and the verses after. We generally preach at Crosspoint verse by verse, but this is one of those standalone sermons on a Sunday, and so we need to consider where we're sort of parachuting into. So look at verse 2 through 10 with me. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness, our focus this morning with contentment, is great gain. Verse 7, why? For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, 
With these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's our setting. Have you ever been in one of those stores that is filled to the brim with odd items, like a gift shop at the beach? Like, think about the gift shop at the beach. And the question is, why are they selling that? Right? Why are they selling that? Why are they selling an ashtray made from seashells that says lit on the front? Why? Like, whose idea was that? Why are they selling a hat with a fake ponytail coming out of the back? Like, who said, I can make that hat better? Why? Why are they selling that? Why are they selling those huge moo-moo t-shirts with someone else's body airbrushed on the front? And the answer is simply this, because people are buying it. They're selling it because people are buying it. This is part of what was going on in the early church. They weren't selling moo-moo t-shirts, but there was a situation where people were selling something, and you say, well, why were they selling that? And it was because people were buying it. Paul's writing to Timothy, urging him to stay true to his calling and to fight the good fight of faith. And in his exhortation, Paul says, this, Timothy, you got to be careful. Because there are some who sell something, who, who peddle something that is not the gospel. And they're not outside of the church waiting for people to leave. They're, they're, they're here, they're in, they're amongst us. And, and they're selling something that it looks a little bit like the gospel. And it, and it smells a little bit like the gospel. But it's not the gospel. And the problem is this, Timothy. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Or to say it another way, he says, Timothy, here's the problem. They imagine that godliness can be used as a means to another end, whatever end you may want it to be. They are using godliness to pursue the cravings of their flesh. Using godliness to pursue the cravings of their flesh. And Timothy, people are buying into it. Church people. Church people are buying into it. So we need to spend a few minutes considering what is it that they're actually buying into? What is it that they're buying into? Well, we've been given ten commandments from the Lord. And interestingly, the first and the last commandment speak to the same heart and soul and worship issue. Many of you could probably tell me the first, but the last might be a little harder to come by for some of us. So the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the last commandment is thou shalt not covet. Those things are very similar because those who covet are not loving the Lord wholeheartedly. They've literally begun to give parts of their heart away to other things or other people or even just other possibilities or other ideas or other scenarios, seeking satisfaction in those things rather than the Lord. So in our text, if there's great gain in godliness with contentment, it must be made clear there is no great gain in godliness with discontentment. The opposite of contentment is discontentment, which is the same as covetousness, looking for satisfaction somewhere other than God. Or to say it another way, pay close attention, covetousness, discontentment, says that what I have isn't enough, and what I want isn't what I have. If you're taking notes, which I encourage you to take notes, Scripture says, think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. So you don't have all the understanding you need just by listening, and it's good to think over. And sometimes for me, taking notes helps me to think over what's been said. And write this definition down. Covetousness says that what I have isn't enough, and what I want 
isn't what I have. Now, when I use that word covetousness, y'all might be thinking, oh, good, I'm not guilty of that. I hate sermons where I'm guilty of what he's talking about. That's kid stuff, right? You want the other kid's toy. That's good. Don't covet. Don't want the other kid's toy. Sometimes we talk about covetousness. When we talk about it, we like to minimize such a possibility in our own lives by dealing in a definition that's a little bit too simple. It goes something like this. I'm asking you to consider the inward disposition of your heart and if this is present. And sometimes we kind of explain it away by saying, well, I like all the stuff that God has given me. I like my own stuff. I don't want my neighbor's stuff. I don't go around thinking about how I can have everyone else's stuff, so I'm not guilty of coveting. Yes, that is one way to think about it. I don't want someone else's stuff. But guys, it's deeper than that. Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul talks about it multiple times because this covetousness and this discontentment is deeper than that. Discontentment is sneaky. It creeps in when you're not looking. And it begins as an inward disposition of the soul. Okay, write that down in your notes. An inward disposition of the soul. Covetousness doesn't just creep in and you're like, I'm unhappy. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Anything that comes out of our mouths is because of what's in here. And so what we're talking about this morning is what's in here, this inward disposition of the soul. Discontentment is sneaky. It creeps in. And when it's unrepented of, that inward discontentment, that inward disposition, that inward voice grows more frexing, or vexing and fretting and concerning and whining. And it grows and it grows. So sometimes we find ourselves in situations and we have this inward disposition or this soul voice, you might say, that says, what do I want? I don't know, but it isn't this. Are you familiar with that? A soul voice that says, what do I want? I couldn't tell you what I want, but I'll tell you what I don't want. This. Let me try to personalize it. Maybe you're struggling at work, and you're not necessarily going to quit, and you're not necessarily actively looking for another job, But you find yourself just sitting there thinking, this isn't enough. This isn't enough. This isn't what I signed up for. Maybe you've had a hard week with your spouse, and you're not necessarily looking for a new spouse, but you think to yourself, this just isn't enough. Just this inward disposition of the soul, just this, I'm not happy. This isn't enough. This this isn't what I signed up for. Or maybe you have a major life change, and you think, this isn't fair. This isn't fair is just another way of saying this is not enough. This isn't fair. This isn't what I signed up for. Or maybe you get news that you have a sickness or an ailment that you're stuck with. Or maybe your child has a sickness or an ailment that you're stuck with. Or another loved one has a sickness or an ailment that you're stuck with. And you just think anything but that. Anything, Lord. Not that. Anything else, this isn't what we signed up for. Maybe you're a parent at the end of the school year who's exhausted and you're going, Summer, how are we going to do that? They're they're here all the time. Maybe you're tired. Maybe Maybe you feel clueless in your parenting. You're thinking, what am I doing? Like I have five children, and there's times where I'm like, what am I doing? I should, and having five, I should be like, I got this. But sometimes I'm like, What is happening right now? What am I supposed to do as a father who's supposed to know the things? 
Maybe you're at a clueless parenting moment, or maybe you're just exhausted because of the fifth or 25th utterly restless night in a row where your children wake you up. Someone can't sleep, or they're all able to finally sleep, and for some stupid reason, you're up at 4 a.m. wondering why you're up at 4 a.m., and you're exhausted, and you just think, God, I just wish it was different. I just wish it wasn't this way. This really isn't what I signed up for. There's no easier time for your soul to say that than at 4 a.m. Oof, I'm exhausted. This is not what I signed up for. And in those moments where the inward disposition of our soul is discontent and covetous, in those moments we might be tempted to use godliness as a means to our own ends, right? We're tempted to use godliness as a means to our own ends. We make a deal with God, right? God, if you will just do this, I will do this. God, you give me what I want, and I will give you godliness. Maybe it goes something like this. God, if you will make my boss just stop talking and leave me alone and make my job better, I will stop cussing. No more cuss words. You give me what I want. I will give you godliness. And it's like this trade, trying to use godliness as a means to another end. Maybe um, you are thinking, um, God, if you will just uh, help me in my parenting and let me get some sleep, if you will make it so that never again my children wake me up by like standing over me and staring at me like a creepy horror movie when, and you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh. Lord, if that never happens again, what I'll do is I will use that extra energy to study my Bible more. Okay, God, so let's make a deal. I'm going to use godliness as a means to another end. You give me, give me what I want, and I'll give you some godliness. God, if you give me more money, I'll start tithing on everything I make, not just part of what I make. You give me what I want, and I'll give you some godliness. So discontentment, i.e. covetousness, isn't just wishing for what someone else has. It's deep. It's the disposition of the soul. It's imagining. It's daydreaming. It's seeking satisfaction apart from God. It's seeking satisfaction apart from where he has you in some other circumstance or some other possibility or some other scenario, some of which may not even exist other than in your head. I just want it to be this way. I don't care if anyone else, that's what I want. I just want it to be this way. The inward disposition of the soul. Covetousness says what I have isn't enough and what I want isn't what I have. So now that we see what discontentment and covetousness look like, let's look at contentment. So Paul, we can, we can look at what he has said and we can say, okay, this is the negative side. There is no great gain in godliness with discontentment and covetousness. Those are the things that the false teachers are peddling in the church and they're, they're, they're capitalizing on it so that you will listen to them. They're trying to find an itch that you have and scratch it for you in a way that is not the gospel. So what is this godliness with contentment? What does contentment look like? And I want to encourage you to turn to Philippians 4.11. Just a little bit to the left in your Bibles. Paul wrote to Timothy about this, and it appears he was writing about what he had learned on his own, and he wrote about it also to the church in Philippi. And in Philippians 4.11, Paul makes this statement. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So that's Paul, right? So let's break it down. I have learned. 
So this contentment isn't just something you say, okay, I got it. No, you learn it. And how do you learn, discont- how do you learn contentment? Generally, it's in times where you'd be tempted to be content. Sort of like when you say, Lord, I just pray for more patience. And the next week, he's just testing your patience left and right in different scenarios. So he says, I have learned in whatever situation, not just most situations, not just when it's good, not just when it's bad, but when he is brought high, when he is brought low, and everything in between. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's that word again, content. The same as there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Now, if you know anything about Paul's life, it's, it's a pretty normal thing to kind of go, wait, whoa, 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 Paul. Whatever situation, really? Like, just, just anything, Paul? You're, you're just content? Beaten. Paul says content. Really? Shipwrecked. Content. Imprisoned. Content. Beaten again. Content. Many of us have a definition of content as okay with the way that it is. When we think of contentment, we say if if you're content, you're just okay with the way that it is. But was Paul really okay with all those things? Just just okay with the way that it is? Was he okay with being beaten? Like he's beaten. He's like, I'm just okay with the way it is, guys. I'm a Christian. I'm just okay with the way that it is. Is that what we're talking about here? Was Paul really okay with the fact that there were still so many people who hadn't heard the gospel, that there were so many churches that were still out of order, and that there were so many towns that didn't even yet have local churches? Was he just okay with it? Is that contentment? Was he okay with it? Furthermore, is that what I'm supposed to learn? Because as I'm looking at those verses, there's a personal struggle that I have. Am I just supposed to learn just to be okay with whatever in the world is going on? Am I supposed to learn that? Am I supposed to look at a difficult job or a struggling marriage or what sometimes feels like clueless parenting or a trial or a heartache or a loss? And am I just supposed to learn to say, yeah, I'm okay with the way it is? I would offer that that sounds like complacency. Right? That sounds a bit like complacency. Like maybe something does need to change. Surely the Bible isn't telling me that a faithful response to trial and confusion is complacency. So what are we talking about here? I mean, I, there's this scenario that's created. So I look at this, I'm like, I'm troubled. Surely contentment does not equal complacency. So surely the Bible isn't telling me that's the faithful response. Surely there's more. So I did the scholarly thing that you do, and I looked up the original Greek language for the word content. That's what you do when you're not sure about, hey, does that word mean what I think it is? Am I using the right definition? Go look up the original word in the original language. It's super helpful. And it's not just what scholars do. You can probably Google it. So I'm, th- I'm sitting here going, okay, nope, we're getting somewhere. This, there's no way that contentment equals complacency. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out what the original definition is. And I look it up, and, I, and it comes up, and the definition is this, self-complacent. I'm like, God, I'm really trying to make a good point here. Can you help me out? Throw me a bone. Self-complacent. What is going on here? Complacent is usually a bad thing. Why? Because complacency exists when people no longer care about change, even when change is the very thing that is needed. Write that in your notes. Complacency exists when people don't care about change. They're indifferent to change. They're sort of apathetic to change, even when change is the very thing 
that is needed. So I thought, how does this work? How does complacency show godliness, this great gain in godliness with contentment? How does complacency show that? But it isn't just complacency. It's self-complacency. We hear that self word, and in our culture, we have a tendency to really love it, just sort of a self-help, self-use, self-heal, self-focus. This isn't that kind of self. This is a self, that word is pointing to the inward disposition of your soul. It's soul complacency. That's very, very different. So what are we getting at? How does complacency show godliness? It doesn't. It's soul complacency that shows godliness. It's an inward disposition that is different from the inward disposition of covetousness. It is different from the inward disposition of discontentment. It is different from the inward disposition of that is not enough. That is not fair. That is insufficient. I am not pleased. It is different in that it is an inward disposition of the soul that is able to say in every circumstance, God is enough. That is contentment. The inward disposition of the soul that says, God is enough. It is the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. I need my God. It's the cry of Job that we considered last week in chapter 3, where he says, God, I desire you. Where are you? The reason he says, where are you, is because his soul needs the Lord when everything else is lost. When you put all this together, what you find is that Paul learned in every situation That there is great gain in godliness to be able to have an inward state of the soul that says, God is enough. I have seen who God is. I have seen what he has done. I have seen what he is doing. He has revealed to us what he is going to do. And no matter the situation, he is enough. He is sufficient. My soul is at rest. I'm not just happy with what he has given me. I'm happy with him. He is enough. That is is contentment. And as we kind of close this section of considering what this is, I want to encourage you, we're not talking about faking it. Guys, we're not talking about launching up fake words heavenward in moments of trial. Like, okay, just when things are going bad, just say, God is enough. Because the problem is that won't comfort you if he is actually not enough for you. There are some of us sitting here today that might say, I'm, kind of, I'm fine saying God is enough, but what, if that doesn't comfort you, if that doesn't calm the inward disposition of your soul, maybe you've deemed that God isn't enough. Potentially, you're giving your heart away to other things, saying, no, what's enough is if you would change the situation. What would be enough is if you would give me more money. What would be enough is if you would just make this easier because I'm exhausted, God. We're not talking about faking it. We're talking about an actual love of God, an actual trajectory of worship where you say God is enough. All of the godliness in the world. Guys, you can sit in here week after week, listen to sermon after sermon that is well prepared and well thought out. You can go home and read your devotions. You can read books. You can listen to podcasts. You can have your little earpiece in and always be listening to something about godliness and godliness and godliness. And all of the godliness in the world will get you nowhere if you do not put some contentment with it. That's what Paul's saying. That godliness is not great gain if there is not contentment that goes with it. This is what Paul learned, and this is what Paul taught. This is what Paul urged Timothy in so that Timothy would urge this in the church, and the church would know that is what I need, a soul disposition that says God is enough.
So I have five application points. I'm sorry, I was going to go for three. That's the pastoral thing to do, but there's five today. Here's the first one. False teachers are looking for professing Christians who have a discontent inward disposition. I want you to listen to that. I want you to take that into account. That's what he's warning against in 1 Timothy 6.6. False teachers are looking for professing Christians. They're not looking for just just, uh, godless people who don't care or who are indifferent. They're looking for those who are professing Christians who have a discontent inward disposition. Discontentment and covetousness make you susceptible to the enemy. They're not really... It's not solving any of your problems. It's not helping you to move forward in godliness and sanctification. Discontentment and covetousness are literally a foothold for the devil in your life. False teachers are looking for people with such an inward disposition. Consider the first false teacher. The first false teacher in the garden. The serpent. The deceiver. He went to Eve and essentially said, All this is not enough. You can be like God. And that godliness can bring you great gain. The first false teacher was guilty of the very thing that Paul is warning Timothy about that was happening in the church. This is not enough. You can be like God. And that godliness can be a means to many wonderful ends. Getting rich, being happier, having a healthier marriage. Just use it to whatever you want. Um, just use it as a tool to wield however you would like. That's the false teaching of the enemy. And whether it created an inward disposition of, of Adam and Eve's soul or whether it connected with an inward disposition of Adam and Eve's soul, no matter which you believe, they said, maybe this isn't enough. And they ate of the fruit and plunged humanity into ruin. And without a savior, humanity would remain separated from God and in ruin. Without contentment, godliness is not great gain, but horrible loss, as we saw in the garden. Application point number two is this, and this is a difficult one, so I encourage you to urge, like, to, to, to work with me on it. Discontentment is a bad motivator. Now, you might be thinking, well, if I don't like the way it is, isn't that a good thing, a good way to make it better, like, not the way it is? If I don't like the way it is and I don't want it to stay the way it is, can I say, okay, that'll help me to make it different? But I just want to encourage you. I really think the scripture this morning is saying discontentment is a bad motivator, both for yourself and your own life and as you may be trying to motivate other people. What I mean is this. You might be thinking, hey, what if I want a better job? Or what if I want to have a better marriage? Or what if I want to be a better parent? Or what if I want to lose weight and get into better shape? What about that? And I would simply say, like, that's fine. That's good. But I would caution that discontentment is not the thing you need to motivate you to change. If you constantly say, this is not good enough, then it never will be. Do you hear that? If you constantly say, no matter what, this is not good enough, then it never will be. Even after you've lost weight, even after you've gotten a better job. If you can't learn to be content where you are, you'll likely not be content where you think you want to be. When I used to work with youth, around about a decade and a half ago, I had a parent 
who seemed perpetually unhappy with how things were. And I like this guy. Me and this guy were friends. When you work with youth, sometimes you also work with youth parents. And this guy I would consider a friend, but man, he just kind of, when it came to the youth stuff, he just kind of seemed perpetually unhappy. So I was trying to make some changes that I thought would be good, and I'd been working on these healthy changes, and I went to this parent, and I said, hey, man, what do you think about this? And this is his response to me. He said, Scott, I will never be content. It's like, okay, well, that's encouraging. I'm going to get back to work. He, he literally looked at me and said, Scott, I will never be content. I will always want it to be better for my children. So I will never be content. It can always be better. Now, the tricky part is that I agree with the last part. It can always be better. We're being sanctified. We're daily being changed from one mode to another mode, from one likeness to another likeness, to where you're being changed into more Christ-likeness. So I believe that it can always be better, but that whole, I'll never be content. My thought when he said that was, so whatever I do, it will never be enough. My thought when he said that wasn't, oh, good, that is all I needed to continue doing my work. Rather than saying, uh, that helps me, I thought to myself, I think I would rather quit than keep after such an impossible goal. Whatever I do will never be enough. That doesn't make me want to try harder. It makes me want to quit. And the reality was that his discontentment drove a wedge between the two of us. And that's what happens with us and God. When the disposition of your soul says, not enough, I will never be happy, that voice of your soul is not speaking vaguely into the air. The voice of your soul is speaking to God. Right? You believe he's sovereign. You believe he can change anything. You believe he wants you to be happy. And so when you say, this is not enough, this can be better, in effect, what you're doing isn't just offering up words to the air. You're saying, God, this can be better and you can make it better. This doesn't have to be this way and you can make it this way. And there's a discontentment that we have that drives a wedge between us and God rather than bringing about the necessary change that we had hoped for. Our God is perfect. He does not deserve to hear from our souls over and over again, not enough, insufficient, not good enough. I'm never going to be happy because it could be better. And it doesn't just drive a wedge between you and God. If that's how you move with your spouse, that it's never good enough, it'll drive a wedge between you and your spouse. And it's not just that, it's with your children. If it's just never good enough, and you just constantly show I want you to be better, so I'm never going to be happy with you, you'll drive a wedge between you and your children. In your friendships, in your work relationships, if it's never good enough, God says, whatever's lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things because it's so easy for us to default to thinking about the things that aren't the way we want them to be. Psalm 9 says, I will, recount the, the, I will be wholehearted in my worship and recount the deeds of the Lord because we have such a tendency to forget the good things. And when we do that and it's never enough and it's never enough and I'm just discontent and that's the only thing that's going to move me forward, it drives wedges between you and everybody else including God. And it doesn't bring the change that is needed. Discontentment is a bad motivator. Please do not use discontentment to motivate you towards the change you think you need. The third one is this. Real simply, discontentment will let you down. We think that we're holding on to some power by, it's not the way I want, I'm going to hold on to it until it gets the way that I want, but discontentment will let you down. Over in 1 Timothy 6, 
Our main verse for this morning in verse 7, right after it says there's great gain in godliness with contentment, verse 7 says, you brought nothing into the world and you can take nothing out of this world. So at the end of your life, when you go to grasp for those things that you sought contentment in that weren't God, they simply will not be there. The thoughts that you think are better, the potential scenarios or situations that you would prefer, the items that you love so much, you brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out of this world. And at the end of your life, when you go to grab for those things, they won't give you contentment because they won't be there. They will let you down. But for those who have sought contentment in God, he will be there forever. Fourth is this. Contentment allows you to be fully present in the moment rather than constantly wishing for another moment. Just personalize that, thinking about it in your own life. Contentment allows you to be fully present in the moment rather than always wishing for another moment or a modified moment or a different moment. The thing I like about this is that in this verse, there's a very real present component of things that can happen right now. It says there is great gain in godliness with contentment. It's not just something that will happen later on down the road, but guys, it's, it's encouraging to know that there is right now in every scenario, every circumstance, it, it, it invades, the gospel invades, and there is great gain in contentment. There's a present reality. That means for right now, not just in the future. I've expressed from this pulpit before that I'm the kind of person that has trouble enjoying vacation because it will end in five days. That sounds ridiculous. Some of you are like, that dude's crazy. You shouldn't let him preach anymore. Some of you are like, I do that. I have troubles on vacation because, man, five short days, we're going to have to pack up the car and lug it all the way home. Like an otherwise idyllic situation where I'm sitting there with my feet and my toes are in the sand. I'm watching my healthy children play in the surf. And all I can think is something bad's going to happen. Like you, you got to keep your guard up. You say, oh man, it's never good enough. You got to keep that guard up. Contentment allows you to be fully present in the moment. Rather than wishing for another moment or a better moment, it allows you to go on vacation and enjoy your vacation because you aren't putting too much hope in your vacation. You actually believe in heaven. You don't get there and say, well, the VRBO pictures look better than this. There's too much seaweed in the water. If you've ever complained about the seaweed in the water, shame on you. It's just the way it is. I've done it. We can enjoy things because we're not putting our hope in such things. It allows you to enjoy and be satisfied rather than assess and pine for something else. This is one of the differences between me and my wife. My wife is all in in the moment. She's all present. She's fully present in every moment while I'm just assessing it. I'm looking at what's going on. How can this be better? And we laugh about it, but it makes it difficult sometimes because it makes me not fully present in that moment when I should be. So it allows you to be fully present with your children and with your spouse and with your friends. Rather than saying, this isn't what I signed up for and this isn't enough, contentment just says, this is great. Because I can enjoy this, whatever it is, for what it is. Because I'm not making more of it with unrealistic expectations of it never being enough. The fifth application point is pretty simple. If there's great gain in godliness with contentment, then godly people won't complain and grumble when things don't go their way. This is so hard. Dang, this is hard. If there is great gain in godliness with contentment, then godly people won't complain and grumble when things don't go their way. Notice how no one's going, amen, right now. Because this, this is hard. 
I want to be careful. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn in loss. Ecclesiastes 9 says to go into the, the, the house of mourning or the place of death is better than, than the day of birth. And it's saying that, man, in, in that mourning and in that loss, when things aren't going the way that you hoped, there is something you can learn from that that is completely unique to every, other, every other situation of life. And God says when you need to mourn, don't rush it. You take your time, and he's with us, and he calls others to mourn with those who mourn and to weep with those who weep, and he cares about the details of your life. And just as it was in Job 3 last week when he mourned for a whole chapter, but he did not sin, it is okay to mourn. But I would offer that mourning is very different than just grumbling and complaining. It takes trust to believe that God is enough, but it's a trust that can continue to move forward in godliness even when things are hard. If you trust that God is enough, then you trust that you will be able to put one foot in front of the other and move forward. When he provided manna for his people, it was daily. You couldn't go grab up 20 days worth of manna so you didn't have to worry about manna for 20 days. You had to trust him for that that morning and then do it the same thing the next day. And so our trust in God allows us to put one foot in front of the other rather than complaining and grumbling when things don't go as we would prefer. Some of the most productive and steadfast people are those whose soul has an inward disposition that is satisfied in God in every circumstance, not just most of them or some of them. And this brings us to our supper this morning. I want to be careful not to imply that it is somehow a bad thing to want the blessings of God. You might be thinking, oh man, I I really like the blessings, but maybe I shouldn't like them too much. No, 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 no. (laughs) I do not want to imply that it's a bad thing to want the blessings of God. Ephesians 1 says that in Christ... Our Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He reminds us that he's a good father that gives good gifts to his children. He pleads with us to come to him with our requests and to trust that when we ask for bread, he will not give us a snake. This supper that we're about to take is a supper of more abundant blessings than any supper you could ever take. But here's the difference. To take the supper rightly is to trust that God can choose which blessings you need. Please listen to that as we prepare to take the supper. To take the supper rightly is to trust that what you have right now is God's best for you. It allows you to be fully present in that moment because you trust the God of the moment. So as we take this supper, to take it in faith, to take it the right way, what we're saying is, I take this and I trust that God can choose which blessings I need. Not that I need to tell him what blessings I need or that I need to remind him what blessings I need. We trust that he will do what's best for us whether we understand it or not. Jesus trusted that his father would give him what was best for him and Jesus trusted his father all of the way to the cross It doesn't always make sense to us. As God tells us to take up our cross and follow him, it doesn't always make sense to us, but the soul that says God is enough will trust God to choose the blessings and will not use godliness as a means to another end. Scripture instructs us to examine ourselves before we take the supper. So as we disperse the elements right now, as we pass out the bread and the cup, I encourage you to consider the inward disposition of your soul and if you trust God to choose which blessings are best for you.
to pass out the elements.